Hey, Vanessa. Well, she's not here. She is still on her honeymoon. Yeah, because people still do that, apparently. So here I am alone. Welcome to Uncertain Things. Um, what did we miss? It's been a, it's been a weird month to take off. Um, but now we are back and we have uh, a lot of stuff to deal with. Um, I, I just returned from weeks of liberating media-free vacation, which I succeeded in keeping unbroken um, and refused to attend any of the, the nightmarish thing that have been happening, um, though the temptation was live and well. But the truth is that there are better, more urgent journalists that can take care of the breaking news. And that's not why you listen, I think. Nevertheless, I did feel obligated to our listeners to at least convey our, uh, you know, our existence during this time. So I sent out an email to our subscribers on Substack. And if you're not subscribed, you should. Uh, but I'm going to read just one part that I thought was um, relevant. Um, the fundamental question at the heart of uncertain things is how to face the apparent collapse of so much we care about, so much we used to take for granted. If you listen to our pod, you've probably picked up on one recurring villain, our sense-making institutions. I may have ranted once or a billion times on air about the epistemological shitshow wreaked by our media habits, the decline of adversarial pedagogy or debate culture in academia, our societal addiction to reality-blurring euphemisms, and our pathological cultural alienation. Due to my obsession with these maladies, it was crucial for me to do my best to prevent uncertain things from becoming part of the problem. In part, that meant not producing episodes or articles for no other reason than satiating the insatiable content god. If we release an interview or a blog post, it's because we think it's worth your time and ours, because it meant something to us. Much content has been nixed by us that only barely exceeded the level of not totally mind-numbing. But another principle to which we try, try, mind you, to adhere is not letting the work on certain things drain us of our human time. It sounds idiotic to say, but my God, it's easy to forget how much life matters. Life is in the people we love, the books we want to read, the real-life arguments we want to have. Without these, we're diminished as people, as journalists, and as bumbling podcasters. So, hopefully, we're slightly replenished now, uh, ready to deal with the, with the horrors of the past month. And... Um, to get started, I, 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 I wanted to avoid diving straight in to the bog. Um, so instead I invited the impeccably dressed and inimitably sonorous Andrew Heaton of the Political Orphanage podcast to join me and help remind me how to do this podcasting thing. Andrew is a comedian with a political tinge. You might pick up on it. We talked about making comedy, especially political comedy, which inevitably led to having arguments with people and persuasion, which in turn led inevitably to my pet topic of cognitive dissonance. You know, one of our favorite things here at Uncertain Things. So I'm greatly grateful to Andrew with his irreverent avuncular humor and 
patrician diction for easing me back into this world. Oh, Andrew makes me laugh, so trigger warning, you might hear my maniacal villain laughter um, popping in and out. And also, I apparently recorded in what sounded like a cathedral, so it reverberated. So, it's good to be back. Many conversations ahead. Um, If you want to follow us, we are on certain.substack.com. And if you feel like getting in touch, we are always eager to hear from you. And with that, Andrew Heaton. Okay, okay. So normally I start by saying hi, Vanessa. She responds lovelyly. This is not going to happen today because she is um, in the stage, uh, in the honeymoon stage of this atavistic institution we colloquially know as marriage. Uh-huh. So I, I uh, decided to give her the the week off. Actually, we both took the past month off, and um, to paid subscribers, we'll be giving the prurient and lurid details in in special episodes to come soon. Um, but uh, coming back to the U.S., being back in podcasting, although I'm still trying to remind myself how to do this thing and what side of the microphone I'm supposed to be talking to. Um, I thought it would be great to have you, uh, Andrew Heaton. Thank you. A, a pleasure to be here. Wait, can I, I want to ask a couple of follow-up questions. If this is, uh, if marriage is an atavistic institution, are you yes. one of these polyamorous people or are you just a bachelor that couldn't get married and you're, you're looking to, to cover your bases? Like what, what is, where, where are you at? Oh, oh, oh I, I'm basically, I'm, 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 I'm a failed bachelor from a Norman Rockwell painting. <laughs> so I, I believe in the, in the institution of marriage, but it seems to have eluded me. I, I think I, it's my coming from, uh, well, I, don't, I shouldn't say broken family, but, but coming from a, a family that did not work out, uh, by traditional standards, I, I, I grew up with some resentment towards uh-huh. it and, and viewing the, the archaic nature of it as, um, you know, good for some, no judgment. I'm not preaching any, any version of um, how to handle families, but just showing some resentments for the expectations that come with that institution. Well, hold on, so hold on, let me just throw this out here. You can take this or you can leave it. If it doesn't work out with Vanessa and her new husband, I will marry her and adopt you. Every problem is now solved except uh, the solvency of their first marriage. But I get a wife and you get a new family. Wow. Wow. That's a great pitch. That's a great pitch. Yeah. Let her know. I will. It's lovely because I don't think you've even met her. So that's really kind of you. Sight unseen. That's right. I'm, I'm a romantic like that. I old fashioned podcast marriage. Why don't, why don't you introduce yourself in case, um, one or two people uh, dare not know who you are. Thank you. That, I, I appreciate that. Uh, so you listening, I will adopt you as well. You are also my son and or daughter now. And uh, I, your new father, am Andrew Heaton. I'm a political satirist and a comedian. I do funny videos for reason periodically. And mainly, I host a wonderful podcast called The Political Orphanage, which you are required to listen to as my son or daughter. The Political Orphanage is a podcast for people that feel out of sync with the whole red team versus blue team psycho fight and tend to have friends they disagree with and tend to think more in terms of fixing systems than fighting bad guys. 
And so uh, I host that show, The Political Orphanage. I will warn you, though, that there might be not a good rate of conversion here because listeners of this podcast come here for the hyper-partisanship and, right. and zealotry. That's yeah. what we're known for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that, that's the, the memo I got was don't go do this podcast with Adam in the room he's recording from because he's packing heat and he's got a switchblade. <laughs> That's what I was told. Yeah, and I was also just a big uh, uh, Second Amendment guy. So I mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the one time, the one time I've physically been with you, uh, the the thing that freaked me out was you kept stirring your coffee with a loaded gun, and I was like, Adam, not only is this not a safe thing to do, it's honestly not good for the gun, let alone the coffee. But you were adamant that that you believed in the right to bear arms. You were going to keep stirring that gun or that coffee with that gun. I think also that your refusal to try that coffee afterwards mm-hmm. precludes anything you have to say about the taste. That's Until true. you try it, and with the added value of metal, you don't you don't get to judge. And I suppose my Second Amendment credentials have atrophied somewhat as well because I won't drink gun water. <laughs> I, I also I, I wonder. Um, you know, the main reason that I wanted to have you on the pod today is truly just because you have such a, a authoritative affect, I should say, and radio ready persona. Well, where, where does it come from? Have you been to Oxford for, for diction practice? I have been to Oxford. I have not been there for, di- uh, for diction. Um, th- this, is, this is something that is very useful to me now in my high 30s as a professional podcaster. Once again, I host the Political Orphanage. You're all invited to check it out. Uh, it was kind of problematic for me in my younger days because I pretty much sounded just like this when I hit puberty. I hit 16, and I, I have vivid, terrifying memories of calling my first girlfriend's household landline. This is, I'm old enough that we didn't have cell phones when I was dating in high school. And I would call and go, hello, I've already reached the Patrick residence. I'd like to speak to Lolly. This is Andrew speaking. And her parents thought I was like a, a teacher trying to bang their 16-year-old daughter. They were like trying to like, like figure out what this old pervert was doing with their limber 16. Is like, no, I'm, I'm a very, very a benign, virginal young man, and I would have to call back and pretend to be a boy. So I'd call back and be like, what's up? Is Lolly home? I'd like to speak to her. And I just sounded like a narc. Uh, so, uh, and, and then when I, when I first got out of college and I was trying to break into being a professional gas bag as I am now, I recall speaking to someone very established at NPR and getting advice from him. And over the phone, he went, you sound like a good kid, but my, my main piece of advice for you is just to talk normal. Don't talk like you're trying to sound on, on the radio. Just talk as you would. And I was like, this, this is how I talk. I'm not, I'm not putting on an air. I just, I happen to sound like I am selling raffle tickets over the intercom. That is my natural default state. Was there a point where you tried to roll it back a little? Like my mom, for instance, she had uh, growing up a tendency to talk in grandiloquent Hebrew and people were taken aback by this. They said, dial it back, dial it back with a purple. Uh And she taught herself to basically damage her language. And she just had to teach herself to talk normal. And and when she does it, that's her faking it. That's her Mm -hmm. trying to fit in. Did you try, did you try to, you know, handicap your, your diction? Well, I wouldn't call it handicap, but I do code switch on occasion. And what I mean by that is when I am doing stand-up comedy, I intentionally lean in to my Oklahoma accent. I hail from Oklahoma. 
Um, although for the record, if you're from one of the two major metropolitan areas in Oklahoma, you probably sound very similar to me. It's, it's kind of a Clark Kent accent. It's not terribly hmm. strong, but I have relatives that grew up in, in, uh, the, the more rural parts of the state. So I, I know that accent when I'm on stage doing stand-up comedy, I intentionally turn that up about 20%. It's, I don't think it's that noticeable to people in the audience, but it's a little bit. And the reason I do it is that I have found that, uh, audiences in general do not want to be lectured from a smart person who's doing really well. That is not something audiences particularly like. They don't want to go out on a Thursday night or a Friday night and have a guy in a suit come up and go, wow, I'm doing great. My 401k is catching fire. My wife, man, she just dropped five pounds and put it back on in her boobs. Everything's great. Uh, they don't want to hear that. They, they want to see the jester who's kind of a, a screw up that makes them feel a little bit better about their lives, which is fine. And as, as a comedian, we are happy to fill that role for you. Um, but I, kind of the way that a lot of comedians do that is they they will be self-depreciating slobs. Like kind of the comedian uniform for years and years was guy in t-shirt with ill-fitting plaid overshirt and jeans that's all kind of rumpled. And he wants to affect the idea that he just rolled off of a beanbag covered in Cheetos. And you don't need to take him too seriously. Uh, I did find when I was doing stand-up at the very beginning of my career and I was in D.C., uh, am I allowed to swear on here, Adam? Uh, you're encouraged, yeah. I'm encouraged. So when I was first doing stand-up comedy in Washington, D.C., I was working on the Hill during the day for, for Congress as a staffer. I would go do stand-up at night. And I, I distinctly recall one time walking on stage while still wearing a suit from work. And before I've said anything, just walking up the stage, I hear a guy in the audience go, oh, fuck this guy. <laughs> and I was like, what? Like, I've not, you haven't heard any of my jokes yet, but it's because I came up on stage as like, the guy in a suit, right? Uh, I, I, and then I, I slowly learned in New York that, um, like to break this down a little bit more, you tend to have two types of comics in terms of analysis. Uh, you've got comedians who are the world is sane, and I am the crazy person. I am, I am the the person doing the nutball things. You may laugh at my antics, or you have the comedian who is sane, and the rest of the world is crazy. And I'm explaining the craziness to you. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld is the latter camp, right? Jerry Seinfeld is doing jokes like, uh, uh, we went all the way to the moon. We went all the way to the moon. And then we got out of the lander and we drove around a little go-kart. We went a little bit further. It wasn't far enough to go to the moon. We wanted to, we wanted to drive around to the moon, right? And so he's kind of, he's kind of looking at absurdities and things. Uh, what I found was that if I am speaking right now as I am doing stand-up comedy, me pointing out uh, weird patterns and illogical things and the craziness of the world sounds like a lecture. Whereas if I get up and I lean into my Oklahoma accent, I, I sound more like a nice guy who is baffled by a crazy universe mm -hmm. and the audience is going to be a little bit more in my favor. So I do code switch when I do stand-up. It's interesting. Ricky Gervais, I just watched his uh, latest stand-up and, and he I've heard actually, very good things. I've heard good things. He, he, he just goes hard. He already did it, in, I think, in some of his previous shows, but this time he really leans hard into just how removed he is from the normal human being. But like, for instance, he says like, he'll tell a joke and he says like, so um, yeah, when my girlfriend and I go back to the mansion, constantly emphasizing <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, and yeah. so I, I, it's nice that you can also figure out how to utilize that as the joke. And of course it's self-effacing. You know, as he's making those jokes, that or when he says, you know, I can buy all of right. it during the show. And you know, as he's saying it, that his point comes from, 
his own working class resentment. The, the, yeah, the, there, there are there are ways to there are ways to shoot the moon. Another guy that does that is Paul F. Thompson. Uh, Paul F. Tompkins. Paul F. Tompkins will go on stage in a three piece suit. He is not playing the fool. Uh, he is playing the, uh, the the guy who is over the top, uh, insulting and condescending. Right. So you can you can affect these characters. That might be a good idea for me. I think it helps if you're already rich and famous. Uh, <laughs> it does help you to do that. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and so, yeah, Rick, Ricky Gervais is doing something like that, uh, of, of being able to, to go in the other direction. But, but again, I do think that what makes it unique is, is not just the, his, I mean, obviously is the fact that, you know, in the background, there's a story of the person who comes out of riches into it and, and now plays the nouveau riche. So I, maybe, maybe this is an interesting topic actually as a comedian, how, much can you trust the audience to parse out layers of a joke when you're when so much of it depends on you know you need to understand at least three degrees of irony how do you how do you kind of scale that in when you're developing your set it it varies dramatically from room to room in terms of what you're going to do so for example this last week i was doing a gig in dallas texas i was at a country club now, I'll preface this, I had a great time at said country club. The staff was fantastic, and the audience came up afterwards was very nice. However, this came at the, I was the, the, I was the entertainment directly following a three-day men's golf tournament. So the entire audience is sunburned drunks, just sunburned, drunken 50-year-old men and I got to say, that was not an audience that was going to do really well with anything <laughs> involving ism in the joke. Like it just, just it, complexity wasn't going to work. That was an audience where had I really thought about it, what I should have done is probably reached into my grab bag of jokes that I've gone, eh, this is right on the line of sexist. I don't know if I should tell this joke anymore. Those are jokes I should have told. Those jokes would have done very well. Uh, I find that with, with regular audiences, um, what I tend to do is if I am going to have complex jokes, I will put them at the back end of the show. I find that audience, you can, you can build up trust and cachet with an audience to where even if you make a joke that is not going to compute, if you've already made a bunch of mm. good jokes, they'll just walk with you. They'll do it. Uh, the, the only thing that I find that really turns audiences off, there's, well, there's two things. Um, you can turn off an audience by, uh, what would you call this? Uh, disproportionate response to borrow a military term. Mm. Uh, uh, like, like in, in my understanding of the laws of war is you're supposed to use proportional responses, right? So like if, if uh, uh, the, 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 the army fires a scud missile into your army and you respond by shooting all of your scud missiles into their, their old folks home, that's not a proportional response. This happens with stand-up comedy. Yeah. Crucial caveat coming from Israel, we, there's a whole big debate about the, the problem with the doctrine of proportionality and uh -huh. how sometimes disconnected it is with it the sounds hilarious. War. But yeah, 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 yeah. But I, I think we'll save it to the next uh, set. <laughs> uh, you know what? So fun fact, um, because I am a professional gas bag and I talk about politics all the time, Israel's like the one thing I've given myself a pass on where mm -hmm. I'm like, I am not going to develop opinions on this. I have too many opinions. My mind already is too political on a day-to-day -day basis. All of my friends that are in like, like have opinions about Israel are very passionate about it. And I'm like, I just don't want to have an opinion on Netanyahu. I want this one 
little thing in my life where I could go, I don't know, whatever you think sounds good to me. You, have you seen the Rick and Morty episode um, about the, uh, I think they're assembling kind of a fake Avengers group and Rick and Morty, yeah. Rick constantly mocks them. And at some point he puts the Avengers to the test and said, oh, you're so brave, but what is this one place that nobody dares to talk about? And then Morty's like, oh, I know. And then one of the Avengers like, what is Israel? Sure, well, then, then on the topic of proportionality, one of the things you can do that'll shut down an audience is if you resp- if you just absolutely whack-a-mole a heckler and you do it in a way that is too intense, you will lose the audience. So um, this is one of the questions I most get doing stand-up comedy is hecklers. They're, it's abuse of power. Yeah, it's a, and, and there's and they're they're rare for the record. Hecklers are really, really rare. Uh, I've probably I've been doing stand-up comedy for I don't know, a decade or two now. I've probably had maybe two times where I've had somebody that heckled me with the goal of making my set worse, where they were they were a malintentioned heckler. Uh, most of the time, hecklers are drunks who think they're helping you. They think that this is all fun and you're doing it off the top of your head and they're going to do it too and it's all a big fun party. And you just have to gently let them know to shut the fuck up that you don't want their help. And, it's, and usually you can just be like, hey man, what's your name, Bill? Bill, I got this. I can land this plane. I'll let you know if I need help. <laughs> you can simmer down. And generally, they'll get the message. Um, the, the other big category of hecklers is dudes on second date who, for some reason, think that I'm going to bang their, their girlfriend because she's laughing at my jokes, and so they start wanting to prove they're funny, too. Mm. Those guys are a thing, and you just you don't deal with them. You just deal with a girlfriend. You look at the girlfriend, and you're like, what's your name? Ah, oh, Melissa, cool. So you on a date with this guy? How many dates is it? Oh, third date. Really, Melissa? This is the third date? So you think you're going to lay him? What do you think? Where are you, where are you leaning? Like 2080? Where are we at? And you're just communicating to this guy, shut the fuck up. Because if you bug me again, I'm going to ruin her evening and you're not going to get laid. Right? But you can still do that in a fairly hands-off way. Most of the time, when there's a, a, somebody that's, that's disturbing the audience, all you do is just call on them. I've had this happen multiple times where you're at some horrible little flooded basement of a club and there's somebody on the front row that's talking to their friend. And you just go, hey, you guys look like you're having fun. What are you talking about? And they'll kind of simmer down and you're like, okay, but what are your names though? Okay, like Jeremy and Brittany. Cool, nice to meet you guys. Like, have a good evening. And they, they get it. They shut up, right? But let's say, theoretically, that I just lose my shit and start screaming at these two people in the front row and telling them that they're going to die alone in agony because they're horrible <laughs> people. And like, shut the fuck up. Like, when you do that, the audience goes, uh-oh, this guy's a psycho. So you have to like, like you you can in fact do that if the person continually obnoxiously, drunkenly heckles you throughout the set. You can eventually respond that way, but you got to go up there, right? So that's one way you can lose an audience. The other way you can lose an audience, uh, I have found, um, I now bifurcate my set in that I either do my civilian set, which has no politics, or I do my political set if I'm specifically booked by a political action committee or a think tank, which I do regularly, and they pay pay well and they're fun, but they know what they're getting into and they book me. Um, and the reason that that I say that is, if I'm doing a civilian show where they don't know it's going to be political, audiences for some reason always think the second you bring up politics that the comedian's going to start pointing to individual people and going, "Did you vote for Trump or Biden?" and then just lash into you, which I'm not going to do. But they they seem to worry about that. So I, I find that when you do politics, people get uncomfortable. And even if uh, what I used to do is I used to make fun of like, well, I'll make fun of conservatives for a minute. Then I'll make fun of progressives for a minute. Then I'll make fun of libertarians for a minute. I'm, I'm an equal opportunist and audiences don't think that way. What they, what they think is you made fun of my group and I don't like you. And you now have to rehabilitate them and reboot them. And while mm-hmm. you're doing that, making fun of the other group, you're losing that group. So I, I find that it's just better to only do politics if I'm getting booked to talk about politics. Is that something that changed over time? 
got worse? Uh, I it's probably worse now than it's been, but I think that phenomenon's always been there. Um, like like even protectiveness of your political group, your tribe, right? Like like so you can there are certain things that that uh, stand up audiences are already wary about. Like you'll you'll find when you go into a stand up club, people don't want to sit at the front. They just don't. People uh people like having their laughter be anonymous, which I totally mm-hmm. get. It's why I hate it when people in conversation are like, "Oh, you do stand up comedy? Tell me a joke." <laughs> All right, or you're a brain surgeon? Why don't you just go do some brain surgery for free? But also, like, and then I explain, like, look, the thing is, right now where I'm making eye contact, this is so intimate, we might as well be fucking. This is so weird. It's going to be so weird if I tell you a joke designed for a room full of people. It's going to feel weird to me and to you. And now you have to laugh or not laugh, and I have to. I don't want to do any of that, right? So audiences are right to want to have that anonymity. I think they would probably already be that way with politics in general. Maybe, I don't know, like if you can go back to a period in time where maybe like the early 2000s when it just wasn't that big of a deal, maybe it was different then. Like I remember in college, I had multiple girlfriends that I didn't know what party they were, which is like inconceivable to me today to to date anybody and not know what their politics is. Even if I don't care, it's going to come up, right? Whereas like today I go on dates with women. I don't know what, Mus- uh, what religion they are for like weeks. Uh, like I'll find out they're a Muslim. And I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't know. Uh, but I'll definitely know if they're a Democrat or Republican. Uh, if you can go back in time to when, when politics wasn't the new religion and people weren't treating it as a totem for their entire existence, it's possible that this would have been different. Uh, but, but now I, I think even through Romney, I, I observed this phenomenon. Like back during, I was, I was doing political standup back in like, like 2010, and and you could you could see audiences kind of start to do that that uh, rev up and shut down things. So it, it's been going on for a while. Before we start sliding into the the fun part of of, of how horrible Israel. everything is, oh, exactly. I I, I kind of just want to hear two more or three more minutes about just the the art of stand up because something that I am always fascinated with in the context of what we just talked about is the degree to which you're doing the um, calculations in real time in terms of what do you need to dial up, what do you need to dial down, or yeah. like what's not landing, and how much do you need to reshape your your act in real time? Like I have some experience from the uh, perspective of music, but it has to be. In, in my mind, completely different when it comes to stand up, because if you start something like I'm, I'm sure you, you you drop a few uh, breadcrumbs at the beginning and, and to test the waters and you can tell what's the general mood of the audience. And sometimes I'm sure you feel, oh, fuck, this is going to be a nightmare. How much you know, leeway do you have to salvage a situation? So I'm going to say in complete humility, I am a moderately good comedian. What I mean by that is I am competent at it and I am funny and I am routinely paid to be a comedian, but I'm not going to claim I'm an all-star, right? Like I'm not on that Ricky Gervais level. Maybe I would be if I did it every week, but I'm not there right now, right? Um, So I think for people that are truly at the top of the craft, they probably have the ability to just pinwheel on a dime. And uh, it also helps that people that are at the top of their craft are doing it like once a night, maybe twice a night. So there's very low stakes for them because they know that if they do screw up, they're going to do this again in an hour. So who cares? They're getting paid either way. Uh, and um, they're doing it so much that they've got uh, a a kind of immediate uh, uh, RAM access to all of their set. They, they probably aren't even thinking about the set or they, they may not be thinking about the set in advance. They might just go on stage. They've got a, a set that maybe lasts 45 minutes. And they're just going to kind of drift through it, right? Um, I, I'm, I'm doing standup at this point now about once a month. I do get paid for it, which is nice. I'm definitely above the open mic guys. 
but I'm not doing it every week. Um, so I, on my end, am thinking about the set in advance before I go in and do it. So if I'm doing a, uh, if I'm doing a, a country club like the one I just did, I'll go, okay, um, in this case, I probably could have sworn as much as I wanted to, and I could have done ribald jokes and they would have gone very well. Normally, when it's not a bunch of sunburned drunks at a country club, uh, I will uh, tone it down a little bit to kind of like church-friendly level lingo. So I, I will go, I'm not going to like, I've, I've got um, one joke in my entire corpus that involves uh, the topic I'm about to discuss, uh, where I'll, I'll be discussing dating and I'll go, you know, you realize you need to get a girlfriend when you're on LinkedIn and you're tempted to masturbate. So like, I think that's a decent masturbation joke, right? But I'm not going to tell that at a country club because it's going to make like, if there's older ladies there, it's going to make them uncomfortable. If there's older men there, it's going to make them uncomfortable. So I'll go through and I'll strike those out. And I, 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 I might also take out certain jokes where, um, like I've got a joke, uh, about like when I, when I lived in Brooklyn, I lived on the corner of hipster and violent death. Well, that one works pretty well if you know New York and you and you know what a hipster is. But if you're like 75, I you may not know the term hipster very well, and you may not like Williamsburg means nothing to you if you're not in the New York area, right? So th things like that you might you might pull out. Um, what I tend to do uh, on my end is I like to scope out the audience before I go up and and talk. Um, if if I am in a lineup with other comedians. I don't want to repeat the same thing they've done. Like a lot of the time, like mm. when, whenever you're doing standup, but one of one of the one of the things you want to do is you want the audience to feel and be aware of the fact that they are at a live event. They're not watching a, a special on Netflix. They're not watching a recording. This is real. This is live. So you'll you'll find that comedians will almost immediately comment on something that is physically present in the room. The room is very cold, or a waiter dropped a glass a minute ago, or the guy in the front row is wearing this very intense Hawaiian shirt that everybody noticed, right? We're doing that because we want to remind everybody that this is real and we're making a thing together right now. But the downside of that is if there is something glaring, uh, it might be that the last four comedians have already talked about it. So I kind of want to be aware of that. If if there's a couple on a date and one of them is wearing a sombrero and we've already talked about the sombrero, uh, I, I want to know about that. That way I don't repeat the same joke. Um, when I was in New York, I would go in and I'd kind of survey the audience. I'd be at the back of the room and I'd survey the audience, try to get a feel of where they were at, what the demographics were. Uh, New York, you also have the, the weird phenomenon. I don't know of anywhere else in the country that this happens, where you might get up on stage and it looks like a bunch of people from Iowa. And you can tell that they understand you. You can tell that they're following what you're saying and they're not laughing at any jokes at all. And then you come to find out they're all Swedish. And they understand English, but they don't understand the cultural touchstones that you're referencing. So none of the jokes are landing, right? It's like, that's a thing that I like to know. Or, or there too, like, um, uh, I, I've got a bunch of just random jokes about places in the world. Maybe I've got a joke about Louisiana or something, right? So I, I'll pop in and if, if I hear that somebody's from Louisiana, I'm like, great, I'm going to use that Louisiana joke, right? Or like, like again, with foreigners, like if I'm like, Norway, what do you think about King Harald or whatever? And I've got my like weird joke about Harald and he and he, he used to make this penguin a corporal in the army and shit. Um, so I'll scope that out. Uh, and then I'll kind of, I'll try to, I'll try to get a feel for the energy in the room too. Um, in terms of the pivoting on a moment by moment basis, um, I think a, a truly good agile comedian would do that and would, would, would relocate their set in a particular way. I tend to already have my set memorized in the order that I want to do it. And if I, if I veer away from that, it's probably because I screwed up and I forgot what I was doing and I'm now just defaulting on the existing set. Uh, but 
what I might do is uh, I will definitely play with the audience if they're playful. This is the most fun thing for me as a comedian is when the audience is laughing and having a good time and they are now participating in, in this. So for example, I was doing a private gig at a distillery in Texas uh, maybe six months ago. And uh, I, I, at some point during the beginning of the set, I say, I'm from Oklahoma, the Canada of Texas. And that tends to get a decent laugh in the rest of the country because Oklahoma is directly above Texas. But everybody in the, the distillery just starts booing me. And, and they just, they're just booing. And I was like, this is funny. I know it's not mean spirited. So I was like, I, I tell them truthfully, this is the second time I've ever been booed for this joke. One time I got booed. I was in DC. I did this joke. And a woman just went, boo, boo. And I was like, why? are you mad at me, ma'am? Like, are you from Tulsa or like, and she goes, I am from Quebec. And I went, Oh, you're from the Arkansas of France. <laughs> and then as now everybody laughed at that. And so like in this, the set in Austin, the rest of the set, whenever a joke did middling, I would go, that was a good joke. I mean, it wasn't shitting on Quebec like you people like, <laughs> uh, you know, and I don't do that every time, but like, and you like, maybe if like, or, or like I was doing a gig in Nashville um, for a student group and I'm trying to like try out geographic jokes because it's a political group. So I'm like going to make like a gas pumping joke from Oregon or something very specific. Mm -hmm. Who, who's from Oregon? No one's raising their hand. I've got like a New Jersey joke. Who's from New Jersey? Nobody's from New Jersey. And I'm like, okay. So I just kind of move on. And then I mentioned something about Liechtenstein and 10 people start cheering. So I have to stop and go, okay, what the fuck is happening right now? Like, there's no way all 10 of you are from goddamn Liechtenstein. There aren't 10 people in Liechtenstein right now. So like, what is going on? And I'm not mad. It's just at this point, we can start having a dialogue and we can talk and it's going to be, uh, someone's going to have something funny that, and, and now I'm going to do a touchdown, right? So that kind of stuff I will do. And mm -hmm. that is the most mm -hmm. fun. The most fun is when, when we're doing this, uh, this 90, 90% me, 10% audience. And then the audience gets to feel as though they are rascals and they are funny and they are participating. And that's a lot of fun. So how did you, how did you give up on all that fun to, to wallow in the sewage of American politics? Well, it helps that, as I said, I'm not that funny. If I, if I were, <laughs> if I were really, really funny, I would just be doing stand up full time. So you were I, hedging but, your bets basically. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Uh, which I have to say, like, like for like a lot of the time I'll mention stand-up comedians to friends and they'll be like, well, I've never heard of this guy. And I'm like, uh, the fact that this guy is making a full-time living at stand-up comedy. And I mean this with, with zero exaggeration. It is harder to make a full-time living at stand-up comedy than it is to become a minor league baseball player. There are more minor league baseball players in America than people working as full-time comedians. Wow. And if, if you're making for anybody listening, if you're a comedian and you've made, let's say more than $500, making comedy over the course of your career, my hat is off to you. That is an insanely difficult thing to do. To, to go up on a stage and say, uh, I'm going to fight 300 million years of evolution where all of my genes are screaming at me that all of these fuckers in the row are just going to kill me with rocks because it's not, it's not normal to have 30 people just stare at you. Like, think about that. When in our evolutionary past was that a good thing? It wasn't. If 30 people were staring at you, they were either going to kill you or they were quiet because a tiger was about to eat your head. So like you're, you're doing a lot, right? Um, anyway, noting that, uh, I, I started doing stand-up comedy when I was uh, working for Congress, as I mentioned earlier. Um, I kept doing it when I went to Edinburgh and I got a master's degree in international politics. So I was kind of doing the same format of doing political stuff during the day. Um, doing stand-up at night. Uh, I became the designated comedian at the Saturnalia Cabaret, 
I was the comedian that went up after a girl that took her clothes off, but before a guy ate light bulbs. And I feel like that was probably the best like fit <laughs> for me in my life. Um, so I was doing that and they were very separate phenomenon for me. Like one was this very like clinical adult job I was doing. One was this funny thing I was doing. Uh, I moved back to Washington, D.C., because that seemed like the responsible thing to do. And at the time, I was like, well, I'll, I'll work at a think tank or I'll hopefully work for the State Department. Maybe I'll go back to working for Congress and I'll do stand up at night, maybe in my 40s. Uh, when I am sufficiently established, I will transfer to New York and then take a risk. And um, basically, I was in D.C. for maybe six months to eight months. And that that responsible adult job really wasn't materializing. I ended up becoming a Segway tour guide uh, and I. Uh, I went, wait a minute, if I'm just doing a survival job, albeit a fairly quirky one, why do I need to live in D.C.? And then realized I don't need to be here. So I moved to New York, um, started doing comedy up there. And then the the two things just kind of started merging. Uh, I ended up, um, uh, there was a television show that was about to start called The Independence. And um, somebody passed my name along to the hosts. And they were like, hey, this guy's funny. Andy likes Milton Friedman. And they were like, what? Uh, who... And there's not a lot of funny people in America that like Milton Friedman, or I should say professionally funny people in America that like Milton Friedman. So they contacted me and they're like, like, and you work for Congress? And I was like, yeah, I got a political background. I think the free market's great and I can crack jokes. And they were like, done, you're hired. Uh, and <laughs> from then on out, the, the, the two kind of merged. So like today on the political orphanage, it's, it's a, you know, it's a policy analysis show, but, but it's, um, it's funny. It's pithy. I'm still a comedian. I'm still making it funny. So I'll, I'll be witty with the guests. I'll, I'll do, sometimes I'll do sketches on the show. Sometimes I'll do amusing sponsors on the show. Uh, and so I've, I've kind of, uh, now there's this sort of a back and forth balance between the two. And I do um, funny videos for reason every three or four months. And those are both political satire, but explicitly comedy. Like they're uh, at most it is a funny explainer video where I'm going to be doing joke after joke after joke, but explaining the Jones act. Uh, and I, I feel like this is a good fit for me. I like being a political satirist. Yeah, I think I think that's how I first saw you in the uh, reason videos mm -hmm. before um, asking you out on a date um, at that party because mm -hmm. of your patrician attire. You were wearing that beautiful sweater. Did, that did you ask me out? I mean, I'm perfectly happy to go out on a date with you, Adam. But I thought that the way that this worked was that our mutual friend Bacha had commissioned you to be her Sabbath proxy for me to arrange us having dinner and part and parcel to this, you were going to have dinner with us and her husband. So it was like a, a foursome, I guess, that I was yes, on a date. Yes, yes, I guess another way to put this would be, I went on a double date with you and Bacha and her husband were the other couple. I, I'm fine with that. You were tricked into a double date. The first thing I thought of, he, he looks smashing in that sweater. Thank you. And then when I realized your name is Andrew, okay, I have duties to discharge. That was more sexual than intended. I that apologize. guy who looks like he may or may not own a blimp is, in fact, the guy from that Reason video. Yes. I think you mentioned growing up as a, as a Goldwater uh, mm -hmm. conservative. Yeah. As, as I like to say, I'm ethnically Republican. I'm not a Republican, but I'm <laughs> ethnically a Republican. I speak that language. I've dated their women. I, I, I know the, the social mores of that culture. You have a thing for free markets. How do you feel in today's landscape? Do you feel alone? Do you feel very, very alone? Uh, yes and no. Um, so I, I will say these days, despite the fact that I do funny videos at Reason, and I love Reason, by the way, I have nothing negative to say about that outfit. I love everybody over there. I only purport to be an independent. Uh, and so I don't really have a tribe uh, that I can call my home. Um, the reason that I, I used to say I was a libertarian, but I find that increasingly over the last five, 10 years, um, 
uh, one, it becomes a useless term for promulgating ideas amongst my progressive friends because they have so many, um, what would you call them? Like kind of uh, straw men that they're fighting that like, I, I would go like, yeah, I'm a libertarian by which I meant, I don't think the government works very well. And they interpret that as like, so you want to put children in coal mines? I was like, why would, no, I just, I think like housing zoning is bad. <laughs> like, I think we should get rid of, you where, where are you getting that from? And then meanwhile, I got to say on the flip side, um, the, the term libertarian to libertarians has increasingly become a very dogmatic, inflexible, purist, anarchist philosophy where I will, I'll be at some event and, and I'm like, well, I mean, I, you know, I'm okay with publicly funded stop signs and some guy will, God damn it, publicly funded stop signs are the same thing as slavery on this and every planet. And I'm like, okay, I'm not whatever the fuck you are. Whatever you are, I'm not you. And like, and, and then he's like, you're not a true libertarian. Great. I'm not you then, pal. I'm an independent. Uh, and so uh, in that capacity, I feel very adrift. Um, however, uh, I have been very heartened by assembling my own personal tribe on the political orphanage. Because what I've, what I've done on the political orphanage is rather than trying to create a an audience based around ideology, which is more or less what we're doing at Reason, because that is a libertarian outfit, with a political orphanage, I've really been approaching it temperamentally, where I, I find that the common denominator at the political orphanage, there, there are a lot of libertarians, but I find that the, the real common denominator is, do you have friends you can argue with and still be friends? That tends to be the big, the big number, is I find that people that come to my show are kind of baffled and amazed and shell-shocked from all the bullshit conversations around them where people will like scream at them in all caps on Facebook because they have a slightly different opinion or something. Uh, and in, in that capacity, I think there's a lot of people like that. I, I think that um, uh, there, there was that report that came out um, five years ago from Common, was it Stronger Together? I can't remember the name of the outfit, but they coined the term the exhausted majority and mm -hmm. they plotted out the uh, politics along a spectrum, which I have problems with. I think the left-right spectrum is bullshit. But uh, putting a, a pin in that for a moment, they basically said, look, there's 10% of people on the far right are, are Republican activists. 10% of the people on the far left are Democratic activists around about them. Then there's 80% of the people that fall somewhere in between those that might be a Republican, might be a Democrat, might be an independent who are just exhausted with all this bullshit and particularly exhausted with the histrionics volume and antics of the really irritating people on the extremes. Uh, and I, I find that I do have a lot of resonance with those folks in the exhaustive majority. That there are like, one, one of the things I love about the hate mail I get is that it's like at its worst Canadian. Like my, my hate mail from my audience usually begins with, Dear Mr. Heaton, I love your show, but I took umbrage with your position on the national gun registry being like whatever the thing is, right? Like, and it tends to be these very helpful wonky emails. And so in that capacity, I actually think there's a lot of people like that. I think we are in fact the majority of people in the country. It's just that we're not represented by the political class or by the media class. The question of temperament and how you approach disagreement was one of the things that we talked about in our, our, our foursome um, back with Batya. I think that's one of the topics that we started dwelling on around the third martini, which is the issue of cognitive dissonance. We also had a conversation in an episode that I guess was expunged from the historic record. And What? No, it's you, you talk about the one on my show? That didn't get expunged. Oh, no. I'm, 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 uh, yeah. so, so people that love Adam and, and mildly like me, 
Uh, Dom has been on my show, The Political Orphanage, where we had a great episode on cognitive dissonance, and I got lots of good feedback on it. I haven't heard well, it. We were there, so you don't, you don't need to listen to it because you participated. I in cannot it. listen to myself. This is, by the way, the thing that, that makes this podcast such a chore for me because I, I need to trim and edit my own crap. But point is, we were talking about this issue that is deeply close to my heart, which is cognitive dissonance, which um, I think is a valuable tool for people to be able to have conversations with others and understanding that, you know, the world is complex enough or our brains are limited enough that we can't really reconcile a lot of the things that are happening. And we shouldn't even be trying to chart out the ideal path, the golden path for society or even for our own lives. And just accept that we embody contradictions and that we are allowed to be, to some extent, hypocritical. Those shades melt together um, of what's good, what's bad, um, who's right, who's wrong. Those are not useful categories for most life-based decisions. So accepting that and being more patient with your own tensions in your own head leads to, you know, somewhat more, if not comfort, at least more enjoyment, taking, taking joy rather than rancor from, from disagreement, looking at somebody pointing out something inconsistent with your own logic as a moment of excitement you know, this thrilling mystery of, ooh, you're right, those two strands in my head really do collide in some interesting way, then you can decide whether you lean in or you resolve those tensions. But being comfortable with it is valuable. And to me, that's, I think, part of my my temperament. But I can never tell whether or not I come at it because this is some hardly earned philosophy based on my readings of people like Berzun or authors that I love that kind of capture the love of paradox in their work and then applying it on my life or my political views? Or is it just a temperament? Is it just a fact that I grew up getting to arguments with people and kind of enjoying being proven wrong on things and kind of enjoying seeing how, how, how beautifully inexplicable some people's behaviors are? rather than just, I need to find the ultimate Marxist explanation and to see how history falls in a clear path. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that this is something that you evolved over time? And the people that you talk to, do you see them growing and and developing that muscle? Or is it just, you know, some people just like that? It's kind of like sadomasochism. We're just the sadomasochists of political theory. Uh, I think in my case, I probably had both. There was a conscious decision to move this direction, but also I, I think my my circumstances have lent themselves to a temperamental bearing, which is more open and tolerant. Uh, and what I mean by that is like, let's take, um, you know, red team versus blue team, Republican versus Democrat. I like, uh, I, I tend to approach politics as, as an engineer, by which I mean I'm trying to optimize and fix systems, and, and I don't tend to approach it as white hats, black hats. Uh, I think a lot of other people, I think most people that are now in this political media space go white hats, black hats. That's, uh, there's a lot of new entrance to the field in particular. I think the word engineer is taboo among uh, at least self-identified libertarians. One of the things that will get people shouting in one of those events, right? The word engineer implies LBJ. Right, because they're they're worried about social engineering. And there's also, again, I have to just point this out here. Let's say, Adam, that a UFO landed on the lawn of the White House and aliens come out and they bring out a podium and they address, hello, people of Earth, we come in friendship. 
we are going to bring you uh, a fusion power and a type of orgasm that cures cancer. We're going to teach that to you. And we're going to welcome you into the Galactic Federation. There's only one rule, by the way. There's just one law. The law is you can't exceed 15 times the speed of light, which we'll teach you, by the way. You just can't exceed. Some libertarian at the back of the audience is going to go, we would all rather die and never have <laughs> orgasms again than suffer under your tyranny. Like that guy, I can't do anything about and I want nothing to do with, to be honest with you. Um, I, I do find, yeah, when I say engineer, occasionally people will get freaked out and they'll think social engineering. Uh, I'm just talking about systems, which by the way, volunteerism is a system. Uh, in, in anything that is that has stuff in it, in a pattern, is a system, right? Um, uh, so, so I tend to approach it as a system. But b- back to the earlier point of sort of temperamental bearing and um, why, why I think it would lend that. Uh, I, as I said, I'm from Oklahoma, but I've spent my adult life living in bright blue cities like Washington, D.C., New York City, now Austin, Texas. I lived in Edinburgh for a while. I have lots of very good friends that are um, Republicans and conservatives and libertarians from circles that I've traveled in and also just growing up in that part of the country. I have lots of friends that are delightful progressives that are Bernie supporters who I think are very wrong about economics, but I, I think are wonderful people. Um, I, I think that has sort of forced me to go, well, I have to, I have to come up with some kind of internal system which allows me to like these people and get along with them and think they are wrong simultaneously. I have to come up with a way of interacting mm-hmm. with them in the world where I don't have to write them off as, as shitty people. And the way I, I have come to do that is I, I see a distinction between what you're trying to do and the means by which you're accomplishing that. So, I, for example, I, I will sound very libertarian here for a minute. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think minimum wage laws are a bad idea. I, I think price controls in, in, in any capacity are not going to work. I think price controls are, are almost like they are the logical fallacy of economics, and it bears out every time you look at them. It's, they don't work, right? And I think if you increase minimum wage or you expand minimum wage, what you're going to end up doing is helping some amount of people, but you're also going to knock out a bunch of people from the workforce, and it's going to be counterproductive to the people you're wanting to help. So having established that, that I'm anti-minimum wage guy, I appreciate the fact that the people that want to push a minimum wage, with the exception of large corporations, are generally folks that are trying to help poor people. And I, I appreciate that that ethos, and I appreciate that impulse. Now, I think that you're wrong in how you're achieving that, and I would like to have a conversation with you about it, but I don't think you're a bad person. Now, conversely, if you if you went, I hate poor people, so I want minimum wage, I'd be like, well, you're a shitty person. You're logically consistent, but you're shitty, right? Or like, um, I don't know, I like let, let's say, like, I think, uh, to, to quote uh, uh, St. P.J. O'Rourke, uh, Trump's uh, wall along the, the southern border is really just a billion-dollar Mexican ladder uh, subsidy. Like, it's not going to work. It's a bad idea, right? That said, though, if I'm talking to a Trump supporter about building a wall along the southern border, I'm like, well, why do you want to build it? If they say, uh, I am really worried about crime and I'm wor- really worried about uh, drug cartels coming into the United States and I want to protect innocent citizens from this. And I, by the way, I'm in favor of immigration. I just want it to be done legally. And I think the law, the wall is going to help. I, I still think the wall is stupid, but I can appreciate where you're coming from. Whereas if you said, well, I hate Mexicans, I'd be like, well, you're a racist. Then, then like this is not, you know, but the good news is most people that I meet are decent people across the political spectrum who I disagree with their ideas on. And then I flip it, by the way, when you're looking at legislation, you ought to invert this model. To quote St. Milton Friedman, you should judge a policy based on the outcome, not on the intent. So if Bernie Sanders believes that if we buy a lot of accordions and we throw them into a canyon, that will help poor people. It's a travesty that in our country, uh, people in Mississippi, poor people, they're eating shoe leather. 
I don't think that should be the... Okay, what's the outcome of this? Ah, it won't fix anything, you idiot. Okay, well then, we're, then Bernie, you're a good guy, but your your <laughs> your policy is a dumb fuck policy. So I'm going to shoot that down based on the outcome. The, the problem with oh, it's funny that I start with the word problem. Um, the <laughs> the thing that tickles me about the approach to people and judging them by. I guess intent or with a degree of empathy is that ultimately, ultimately, you're, what you're telling me is that the whole uh, temperament question is that you're you're just you're a squish. You you like people. You mm-hmm. like people who seem to also like people. Mm-hmm. And if you come at your decisions based on you know, I just want to live a good life. I want to be happy. I want my my friends and family to be safe. And and maybe I have the wrong ideas of how to reach to reach it. But my general perspective is live and let live, then we can talk. Well, I think there's two things to identify there, right? There's the squish bit, which I'll come back to, and there's the sort of uh, operating principle. So I'll say as an operating principle, I am emphatically a hedonist and a pluralist. As a hedonist, I am in favor of anything you can do to make yourself happy that doesn't hurt anybody else. Not, not to be confused with a hedonist, which is which is I, yeah, which is whatever and, I am. Yeah, and me too. When I was um, asking you out on a date, apparently. Uh huh. Uh huh. That's we, we were forming a hedonist commune. Um. So so I also like like I'm 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 a friendly, low wattage, atheist, agnostic character. But like truly, if you're religious and it brings you joy, I don't want you to quit being religious. I would love for you to stay Catholic or Mormon or whatever mm-hmm. it is you are, because I I see the value in that and I see the meaning that is derived in your life. I don't want you to live in my cold black following death nothingness skewed. Like, I don't come over to where I'm at. I want you to stay there. So long as you're not trying to stop me from having sex with people or drinking or something like that, as long as this is within your life, I'm very much in favor of it. I'm I'm a, I'm a, I'm a hedonist. And I'm a pluralist. And I'd, I'd say the working definition of pluralism is people are allowed to be wrong. They're allowed to be an error. Uh, like, again, like, I, I don't, I'm not a religious guy. So from my perspective, about, I don't know, 60 to 80% of the people in my country believe in magic. But like, that's fine. Like, we're allowed to be wrong. I, I want to live in a big, open, liberal society where you can be a, a fucking commie and I can be the free market guy. And like, as long as we're able to have kind of a big, broad arena of we're not going to throw rocks at each other and we still do business, that's fine. I, I want that. We need that, by the way, because we're going to run into all sorts of epistemological problems if we don't have people calling out our blind spots. Now, to the squish bit, uh, I think that's a separate thing because there is a sort of just personality bearing. And I, I will acknowledge this. I am very high on amicability and conscientiousness. I, I would I would argue I am prohibitively high on that. I am like a C-3PO protocol droid type guy. I, I am very bothered by violating protocol. I, like if, I'll, if I go into somebody's house, I really want to try to take my shoes off. Can I put my coat, like my, my uh, drink down with a coaster? Like, like, I'm very bothered by all that stuff, right? Pro- probably uh, to my detriment, just on a personal level. And I'm sure that that does factor into social stuff. And I, I'd say that a lot of the pushback I get in my program is that I do tend to be, I do tend to give probably more runway space than I should to guests, where uh, mm-hmm. I ought to push back a little bit more. Um, and, uh, and and so that's a valid concern. And, and it might well be that that some of my um, some of my bearings are just coming out of that default uh, Labrador Retriever temperament. But see, that goes back to my my quest, my original question here because I mean I'm not I'm not 
aggressive for the sake of being aggressive, but I, I do like arguing with people. Mm. And I think, um, I guess with, with the exception of you right now, just because I guess I'm, like I said, I'm still recalibrating, started podcasting again after uh, a month long hiatus, but normally this would be a much more combative mm. conversation, but good combative, we, healthy, for, fun. Yeah. For the regular weekend, I, I actually, like I did debate in high school. I was captain of the debate team. I like arguing with people. I actually, I, I really enjoy dating attorneys because, uh, uh, hey, ladies, attorneys, you all <laughs> are able to fight with me and then go make out in the car. I'm afraid Vanessa is not an attorney. Is she not? Uh, well, maybe, okay, maybe when she goes to law school, the stress will break up her marriage. And I will get both an attorney <laughs> wife and a wife out of this. So so like I like so I, I like arguing with people. Mm. I, I don't do it nearly as much as I used to. Not because I don't like arguing, but because most people just can't handle it. I like, like if, if, uh. If if we're arguing, I don't know. You could pick a topic. We're arguing about gun control or something, and and um, we're we're arguing about closing the private seller loophole or what I like. And we're having an argument about that, but it's not personal. That's fun. I enjoy that. That's intellectually stimulating, and and I very likely will learn something, and I'll probably be less stupid as a result of this, right? But if if we're having that argument, and you just flip the fuck out, and you can't engage in this topic without everything turning into all caps and I am an evil fucker for, for like, like, no, like you're a bad, like those people are not fun to talk to. And unfortunately, I find that the ability to argue is declining in our society. I find that it is a rarity right now. So here's the thing. <sighs> that ability exists in people. And I, I have to believe that because otherwise we really are doomed if it really is just like a vanishing skill. And it's not just the devil advocacy, being able to see things from both sides. It's being able to have a conversation with people and not taking it personally and deriving some pleasure from the complexity of arguments being presented. Thing is, the temperament question. Some people have a, an easy start with this, like di discovering that temperament early on. Some people don't, and some people get worse over time, I guess, because social media tells them that they have to one-to-one um, -one identify with whatever political bullshit they're spouting online. So that makes things difficult. But have you ever had an experience of being able to uh, draw people away from that uh, brink? People in the room where tensions are about to explode. Yeah. I'm really good at that. I, I'm I'm not good at motivating people, but I am a good hostage negotiator. I'm good at simmering things down. I'm not I'm not good at you getting you to buy shit, but I am good at you. I'm good at getting people to put the gun down. But the question is not just diffusing a situation where you know you can see that two people are getting into an argument and you want to like okay okay let's let's go back and avoid the topic. Can you during that argument staying on topic get the person to slightly disassociate from himself from the position that he's holding? Uh, yeah, I can. I'd say it's about 50-50. The, the big problem that I have when I get into these conversations is uh, I, I tend to be very heady. Um, so particularly like because I, I do I, I am a funny policy analyst. So I'm doing policy analysis on a regular basis, which means that I am looking at like data and researching laws. I, I did an episode of my program on Roe v. Wade. I read Roe v. Wade. I appear to be the only person in the media that did this. <laughs> Um, so, so from, from my vantage point, I am, I am, when I enter these conversations, I am primarily wanting to exchange data with people. I'm wanting to compare notes and maybe if I'm being egotistical, I wanted to like preen and, and explain how much I know, but, but generally speaking, I'm wanting to exchange knowledge. I think most people, when they get into political conversations right now are wanting to exchange emotional states. So they're oh, wanting, they're wanting to go, I'm freaked out about this. 
ha! And like, it's your job to go, right? Bruh! And like, when, when I come in and go, well, that's interesting that you're freaked out about that because I just read that there's a 30% reduction in that thing you're freaked out about. So what, what that person now hears is, I am negating your emotional state. And I'm going to talk very calmly because you're mm. crazy. And that pisses people off, right? So that that's the thing I have to work on. And uh, right. I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how to do that because my 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 impulse is to get more and more calm. And that just infuriates a certain personality type where mm. I can make progress. Do you uh, get aggressively calm? Yes. Do you get calm in a way that makes it, because I can see that pissing even me off. Yep. Like if we were having a debate and sometimes I can get like a little heightened because, because I'm having True. fun, yeah. not necessarily angry. But if you're now going to start communicating to me, the more <laughs> exuberant you get, the colder, more frigid and frosty your yep. responses get. Uh, it's going to drive right. me crazy. It's not, and it's not fun in relationships. And, it, and like, and part of it, I think, I think the, the, the whole reason for that, by the way, uh, like I'm, I'm old enough now that I realize my parents are not standard. Like it takes you a while, I think in life to realize that like parents parent differently, like to really intuit that. Way? Um, my, I, I grew up, my mom would explain the reason that our, our marriage, uh, your, your dad and I get along so well is that, uh, we have a rule. Only one of us is allowed to be crazy at a time. So if, if I start getting really emotional, your dad will become calm and give me space. If your dad's wow. really angry about something and he's venting, I will get calm and give him space. Now that works out great for my parents and it works out great for that personality type. And that's very much what I do. So when people start freaking out, my instinct is to go, oh, you're having a freak out moment. I'm going to just kind of sit here quietly and give you some space. But it comes off to a lot of people as condescending, even though I don't mean it that way. Um, the, now, I don't think it's just condescending. I think for people like me, it just shows more power and self-control and that it makes yeah. me feel guilty that I, I don't have such discipline in yeah. argument. And, and, and allow me to be very condescending for a moment. Yeah. I am happy to lay that on to a dimwit who is loud because this is a lot of my life right now is I, I might be wrong about a lot of stuff, but I'm not uninformed about that stuff. And what I mean mm. by that is I can sit down with a lot of different fields and have a good conversation with an expert who knows more than me about, I don't know, the environment or economics or foreign policy, whatever, right? But that person's not going to wake walk away and go, that guy's a blithering idiot. He doesn't even know the terms. I know the terms. I know, I know the lay of the land, right? So I might be wrong in my conclusion, but I, I have a basic working knowledge, right? I I really don't have time anymore to talk to people that don't know what the fuck they're talking about and want to mm. compensate through passion and volume. Mm. Those people irritate the shit out of me. And I, I'm willing to, I'm willing to talk to them if their goal is, oh, I want to learn about this. To learn, right. But if, if their goal is to emote and they don't know what they're talking about, I want to get out of that conversation as quick as I can because there's nothing in it for me. And I know they're going to get mad at me because I'm going to start, I'm not going to reward them for throwing a temper tantrum like a goddamn child. So like, I, I'm either going to try to switch topics to something we have fun with. Or I'm going to go, well, that's interesting that you would say that. Now, my understanding is we outlawed that in 1934, so it's not even relevant. Like, am I missing something? And then they want to punch mm. me. Uh, and so, like, that, <laughs> that stuff. Um, but can I, can I tell you some tricks that do help in yes, general please. for this? Uh, I learned this from Peter Bogosian, who I don't think you've had Peter on, have you? No, no. I would highly, I would commend him to you. I think he'd be a great guest for you, Adam. But uh, he wrote a wonderful book called How to Have Impossible Conversations that I interviewed him about on, on mm -hmm. the political orphanage. And some of the... Um, tools that he has in there, I found to be incredibly useful in terms of uh, being able to re to avoid unnecessary friction in difficult conversations. So um, one thing that I do when I start talking to people, uh, again, I'm getting better and better at avoiding dumb conversations the older I get of just like, 
you know, when, when, when someone says like, I don't know, why can't we just do whatever France does? I'm like, okay, I don't, this is, do you know what France does? No, I just, but I, but I went there when I was a sophomore and I feel like I'm a sophisticated person and deep down I'm French, unlike you yokels in America. And I'm like, all right, okay. I'm, you're very special. Uh, your scarf is great. Um, a small asterisk. First of all, as a scarf wearer, uh-huh. that's, that's an important advantage. Sure. Second, they do make undeniably bitter coffee. Mm-hmm. And this is and something great that drives cheese. me crazy. There's lots of wonderful things about no, France. No, but, specific, but, but cheese, you need some locally sourced material and far. Okay, I get the cheese. But the coffee, I don't understand why American coffee needs to be as bad as it is. So when we're talking about why the rest of the world does something right, like, sure, well, the welfare state, don't go to Scandinavia, don't talk about um, gun control in Australia, like, that makes no sense. But the fucking coffee, like, there's no reason that we should be paying $5, or I guess now it's like $8, for a cup of coffee that tastes like lettuce. This is a solvable problem, I'm sure. Are you are you one of those people that wants to drink like high distillate rust diesel? Like like in your mind is coffee something that is really acrid and burnt and over caffeinated because that might be the issue. Is Amer- <laughs> Americans are tepid coffee drinkers. And this I am honest about this by the way. I like weak mild Gas station drip coffee. That is the kind of coffee I prefer. The gas station coffee is the best coffee that you can find in America. And this is the the moment Americans, or at least New Yorkers, I should say, I should say, I have not tasted pseudo fancy coffee in Oklahoma. Mm. But when New York hipster coffee shops try to do frothy milk and coffee, it tastes like some scented candle. I don't understand why this is, how this happens. Because of freedom. Uh, but but so so yeah to, to to backtrack a little bit when I'm you know I'll, I'll try to avoid what strike me as dumb conversations where people just want to emote for their side. Uh, but if we're getting into a decent conversation, um, one of the things that I will do if I don't if I'm not already friends with this person is I will say I can tell it's very important to you to help people, or alternately I'll say I can tell it's important to you to be a good person. Now I will never lie to anybody about this, but the good news is I do think most people are decent people. So like, unless you prove me otherwise, I just sort of assume you're a good person. And what you're doing right there, what I learned from Peter, is what you're doing is you're establishing to the person you're talking to, you're not on trial. We're having this conversation about minimum wage. I just want you to know, I already think you're a good person. And the outcome of this conversation is not going to influence that. And that kind of, that allows them a little bit more freedom where they now know they don't need to be on the defense. Um, I do find that when sometimes I have conversations that I can smell the tensions rising and just having just small signals in the conversation that this is done compassionately. Yeah, yeah, very much so. There are no personal stakes to the result of this conversation can go a long way at diffusing the future conflagration. A hundred percent. And like another example of that, to, to draw back to an earlier example I gave is the, like the Trump wall. If, uh, if you're talking to somebody that you disagree with rather than venturing, because First of all, you need to know what your goal is. Is your goal to embarrass this person so that you feel powerful? If that's the case, don't believe any of the stuff I'm telling you. But if your goal Hmm. is to actually have a good conversation with them and potentially change their mind, which really probably isn't going to happen, the best you can shoot for is a guy who's been doing this for a long time. The best you can shoot for is that you give them a little bit of cognitive dissonance that perhaps in the future they explore and change their opinion on. It's not going to happen right when you're talking to them very often. Uh, But one of the things you can do to try and mitigate this us versus them um, defensive binary is when you're venturing a critique of their position, phrase it as we rather than you. So to backtrack to the Trump wall, um, it would be advantageous for me to say, uh, okay, so the goal here is to stop illegal immigration. 
well, what do we do about the fact that most legal immigrants came here legally and overstayed their visa? It would not seem to me that the wall would do anything about that. What do we do about that? What I'm doing is I'm, I'm communicating to you, hey, man, I actually feel like we're on the same team. And I feel like we're comparing notes to try and solve a common problem. I do not feel like you and I are gladiators. I feel like we're on, on the staff of different viewpoints to a common problem here. I find that helps quite a lot. Yeah, we are trying to solve it together. Yeah, and then, and then two two more quick things that help a lot. Um, mm -hmm. I think you would be very good at this, Adam, because I think you you by virtue of your your Jedi like accent cog cognitive uh, dissonance training, I I suspect that uh, you probably have a um, worked upon degree of laudable intellectual humility, and the reason that that is very helpful is. Uh, most people, certainly myself, are not defending ideas they came up with. They're they're defending ideas that they have accepted from their team or from a source that they trust. Right. So acknowledge that. Like when when if you're arguing with some, I'm arguing with somebody about the environment. Uh, you you could say, um, you know, I read this book by Matt Ridley um, called The Rational Optimist, and he made the claim that climate change doesn't take into account that all these poor people in Nigeria are going to be rocket scientists that they and, and they're going to be coming up with solutions to problems we can't foresee that like what like what do you make of his argument because then what I'm doing is I'm also giving myself permission to like you can attack this argument now and I'm not under attack the argument is under attack and that kind of helps deflect that it helps both of us do that uh, and then, I notice that when I do that in conversations, people will often skip that stage and say, like, what Adam is saying. And sometimes I even need to remind, this is not I'm saying, I'm just, I thought it's an interesting argument, but this is, maybe it's totally wrong. I don't know. And usually in, in questions like that, like, for instance, about climate change, I feel like no matter how much homework I do, whether it's preparing for an interview or just background knowledge that I have and now is coming to play in a debate that I'm having, is insufficient for me to really say with certainty something that, you know, probably is is the subject of, of real debates by people who are spending their entire lives studying. So I can I can say comfortably, I'm not gonna have certainty about it. Oh, see, that's that's another great thing. Have you heard of Bayesian reasoning? Yeah. So another great guy, and I will I will be very happy to make this uh, this reach out to you. There's a fellow named uh, David McRaney who uh, hosts a podcast called You Are Not So Smart. He has a book coming out, so this would be a great time to reach out to him if you want me to put you in contact. Um, David introduced me to Bayesian reasoning, and it's fantastic because you could say like, uh, okay, Keaton, how confident are you about minimum wage? And I'm like, I, I'd say I'm about 90% confident or confident on that. I feel very secure on this. Meanwhile, you bring up like, I don't know, like I'm, I'm reading about gun control right now. It's incredibly complex. And so you're like, Heaton, this policy you just proposed, uh, how confident are you? And I'm like, ah. 50, 60% confident, <laughs> like, and like being able to establish that, yeah. uh, of, of like, this is something that I uh, think probably, but I'm not, I I'm kind of on the divider here. Um, that helps, I think a lot because then it also sort of a it community, it telegraphs to the other person, um, the level of sort of emotional resolve you have behind this particular thing. And, and, and if you are 60%, the, the, you're sort of communicating as well, like, Hey, I might be wrong. Like, don't get that mad at me because I'm not even saying I'm that right about this. Uh, and, uh, though it, though it is, there is a risk when you feel like you're in the Bayesian 80% and above that it gives you the permission to say something. Trust me, I, I know this topic. I studied this topic and this is, I think a dangerous place to be in a debate well, where sometimes you often really are the, the person who just clearly knows more, yeah. but making that claim, drawing that line so blatantly can be mm. counterproductive. I suppose that say. makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, uh, perhaps Bayesian reasoning is good when you're admitting a lack of confidence. Right, then. exactly. Uh, and uh, another thing too that I find um, works is like, 
the phrase, I don't know how to get there or uh, help mm. me help me get to where you're at. So like last night, uh, I was out to dinner with with a lady and I, I mentioned that, that gun control is coming up uh, on my show. And I've been researching the shit out of this for the last three weeks. I'm exhausted with it because um, I'm having to learn all these fucking things about statistics and law and all these things. Um, so now she's very much a gun control enthusiast and like, uh, without divulging where I'm coming from here, um, I, I would like, she'd throw something out and I'd go, I, you know, the, the thing that you're proposing, I don't mind it. It doesn't strike me as onerous or bad, but I, I, the numbers I'm looking at, I don't think it would do anything. So help me get to, what am I missing here? Cause here's why I don't think it would do anything. Help me get to where you're at. Cause I would, I would like to point to this as an efficacious program, but I, I'm not seeing that. And like, like then when you're, you're kind of, you're now relaying it as help me understand your position as opposed to, I think you're a dub shit, which is just less helpful <laughs> when you're arguing with people. Yeah. And also turns their attention inwards in the sense that now, instead of focusing their energy at pushing back, they're looking, let me follow my own logical um, strand. It's a good tip. My only problem with it is the same problem that I have with people who fail to cite the sources of the arguments that they're making is that it's the phrase itself is a, is a cliche. And it, inside an argument, I have a, this is, this is a flaw of mine, or at least it's a, it's a good ideal that I exercise to the point of flaw. I get agitated and averse to using phrases that I've heard in, in such a fixed construction previously, I, I feel like I need to come up with something new on the spot. Either I'm actually quoting where this idea comes from, or if I'm just trying to make a transition and build an argument, I feel like I need to use new building blocks, at least, you know, linguistically. And that can draw the conversation to a halt, and it's embarrassing. I'm, I'm looking forward to being subjected to this, where, like, you and I are walking down the street, and you're like, you might need to get one of those cloth brooms to dissuade the tears of heaven. And I'm like, are you saying I need to get a fucking umbrella because it's going to rain? And you're like, well, I, I mean, that phrase is just overdone. It's going to make you poetic. You're going to be like a little Cormac McCarthy over there. Um, Andrew, this was awesome. And it's always a pleasure talking to you. You too, man. Thank you. It's a fun chat. I would love for you to join us again if you were comfortable. Hey, man, I'd love to come back on. And, I, like, and I'm kind of, I'm warmed up now too because I was, when, when, when I sat down, I was just bleary-eyed from nine hours of looking at goddamned <laughs> international gun homicide statistics. And so uh, so, so I've, I'm only now fully human. So yes, I'd love to come back on and be fully human again. Yeah, because I, I feel like I, I got to talk to you about the, the, you know, the, the, the big picture, but I, there are so many details that we can get into that I would love to hear. And I, I can attest that Andrew does come prepared. He does the homework on the topic. So I feel like we can talk about, I didn't want to go into um, guns because I'm, I, I, I intentionally did not post anything on recent events, neither the Alito leak nor the shootings because First of all, I was on vacation and I decided to respect the Great. The Good for you, man. You were able to yep. that was I was supposed to go camping tomorrow, but I'm gonna have to fucking write this gun control episode. I'm so I'm so pissed off. I was gonna go to Colorado. I'm gonna have to delay it a couple of days. Do it. This is what you should do. You should keep me as an emergency break in case of guest drops out guest. Because <laughs> like like we we I like you. I think you like me. So just keep me on the back burner where you're like, shit, like I Joe Biden was gonna come on and he yeah. forgot. He instead he went to Denny's and uh, Heaton will do it and uh, yeah there's a bunch of things I could talk about I'm, I've like because I I do I, I you know the the kind of the the benefit that I provide to listeners is because I am not trying to serve confirmation bias nor to uh, 
um, be the gladiator for a particular ideology, though I have my bearings, I, I try to do the hell out of research and really explain what's happening there. So on topics that I've done, like we could, we could talk about Roe v. Wade and I could just explain the jurisprudence to you without you even having to take a valence position. Or uh, we could talk about um, uh, why college tuition costs more in the United States, why that's been rising and potential solutions to it. Actually, I think you'd enjoy that because um, your um, your betrothed, her um, wheelhouse is actually um, housing policies. Oh, great! I would love to talk about that. That's uh, I, I am a housing truther. I believe housing <laughs> policy is at the root of many ills in, in American society. I think that's something that actually unites uh, Vanessa and I. And Vanessa comes um, further to the left than me on on many issue, and I and I do come further to the left, probably most of the people in reason. So. On, on at least on social policies, I should say. Um, but yeah, those prudes over at Reason, those <laughs> those puritanical reasoners with their yeah, right. mushrooms and thruples. So the question of economic policies, housing is where I think Vanessa and I are probably at one of our most conservative and frustration with the inability of you know the Democratic Party to actually acknowledge the history of like a century long of, of collective failure. Another guy that would be very good on that that I'd be very happy to put you in contact with, I'm buddies with Jeremiah Johnson, who's mm. uh, host of the Neoliberal Podcast. And I got to yeah, yeah. say, the Neoliberal Podcast, those fellows are doing God's work when it comes to getting rid of dumb zoning regulations. They're really good on that. And he's, he's a good authority on it. I'm angry at myself for taking so long to get warmed up because I feel like now I actually want to drill into the topics, but we'll do it next time and we'll just jump right in. Next and, time um, we'll, we'll, we'll both hit the timer. We'll both pop an Adderall. We'll see what yeah. happens. We'll go off to the races. Except that I, I think it's now a tradition that every time that we speak, we need to we need to tell the Batya story again with some some flourish. Or, or maybe we should start drunk calling Batya when we hang out. That should just be a regular thing as we both do like oh, a couple shots fantastic. of Oizo. And then call her and be like, I I know you're a fucking Marxist, but you're one of the good ones, Basha. <laughs> and when I say one of the good ones, Basha, I'm not talking about the Jews. I'm not saying that. I just mean the Marxists. You're a podcast, if I remember correctly. We concluded on abortion, on an abortion rant. So now we can end on the Jews. Great. Yeah. You use that one clip to promote this episode. <laughs> What's your thought on Israel, by the way? Sounds good. <laughs> Good on paper. Yeah, so, sounds like a good, I don't know. I went there. I had great falafels. Uh, I, I really enjoyed Arak. Uh, let's see here. Um, the funny it, thing is, Israel is one of those places that even saying, you know, what do you think about it? I think it exists would be controversial. See, this, this is, I, I did a sketch one time back in New York where there's people protesting outside of like the Israeli embassy. And like, you know, the, the one group's like, this is apartheid or whatever. And then it comes this one guy and he's like, Israel doesn't exist. And they're like, hey, Mark, would you say Israel doesn't exist? Do you mean it shouldn't exist or it's illegal? <laughs> and he's like, it's a hoax. There's no such thing as Israel. It's all a conspiracy. <laughs> but, okay, last question. What, what joke were you most, like, uh, trepidatious about? In my, in my stand-up set or... or uh, in a public event where, whether it's stand-up or, or, you know, a video that you know was going to be You know what, actually, I, I, I know the one. This is really good, too, because this is a way of relitigating something that might get me in trouble. <laughs> uh, although I stand by the Otis... Uh, uh, so, so now you're going to draw attention to it. Yeah, so. I'm not going to draw attention to it, yeah. Uh, so when I, when I was... So the political orphanage started out as a daily program. And mm. one of one of the signature elements of it was that in addition to the interviews, I would do a funny commercial at some point over the course of the program. They were all they were all fake ads that I mm. would do, and uh, and and because we were doing it daily, I would I would do 
the same sponsor for the week. We'd have multi, you know, we'd have a different ad every day. And uh, one week, the sponsor was the unextinguishable log. You can't put it out. You just can't put out that log. It, it, you set that on fire, it's going to go. Throw it in water. All you'll do is piss it off, the unextinguishable log. So having already <clears throat> done an episode or two on the inherent funniness of this obvious fire hazard, we're, we're, we're done with kind of the obvious low-hanging fruit logic-wise. So I did what, what I often did in the later part of the week is I would do a, a, a sketch based off of this, like almost like a radio drama. And I, I did this radio drama where I go, um, you exit the house at dawn. It's, you know, it's the year of our Lord, 1640 in Massachusetts Bay, and you're going to the witch burning. And I, I walk you through this whole thing. And then I go, then they take old lady Goody Johnson and bring her up and set fire to the faggot which in this instance refers to a bundle of sticks. And then I keep going, but the rest of the sketch, I go, hold on, I just want to pause real quick. When I said faggot, I in that context, it was just a bundle of sticks. I don't want to get in trouble for this. It's If you look it up, that's fine. And I, I, I do that five or six times over the course of it where it makes no sense why this guy, like the whole sketch just turns into me being incredibly uncomfortable with having done this. With and, the read. And I... I I I don't think I, I'm going to go out and limit. I don't think any of my gay friends would think that the humor was being derived from either the word or from homosexuality itself. Rather, the humor was being derived from me, the host, being incredibly uncomfortable and making the situation worse and worse by drawing attention to something that probably would have been forgotten. Right? But that's I think that's actually the joke I was most worried about, just because it was one of those electric words, and I wasn't sure how people were going to take it. And you were genuinely worried about it. You were genuinely, you, you were both acting and actually really feeling that concern. Yeah. Did you, did, did, you, did you find, did you find it that you, you were even making the apologetic character even more apologetic just oh, yeah. to make sure for that sure. you're aware? Yeah, 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 yeah. for sure. But it, but it worked. It worked. It, it, the, the engineering right. was such that it worked for the humor of it. Right, right, right. The incentives were well aligned. Uh, but most, I don't know. I don't, um, I'm not really a provocateur by nature. I'm more of like a Fred Willard kind of friendly dude. So I just, I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm Garrison Keillor minus the me too allegations. So it's, it's, it's somewhat rare for people to get angry based on me saying something provocative. It happens occasionally, but it's pretty rare. So I'm not that worried about it. Do you find that lacking a me too allegation hampers your comedic career? I guess I just had uh, Jamie Kilstein on, who's a comedian friend of mine who got canceled and canceled hard. Uh, right before the phrase "Me Too" was out there, he seems to be doing real well right now. So I don't know. Maybe I should. Maybe I should up my game and go back to like <laughs> 1970s level at appropriate. Andrews, thank you so much. I'll see you again, hopefully very soon. Great. See you later. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Follow us on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and especially your enemies. It's good to be back. And until next time, stay sane.